So I remember my baptism pretty well. Uh, I got, I was sprinkled as a baby, but I remember when I was 18, it was the closest Sunday to Independence Day at a huge Baptist church in Daytona Beach, Florida. And the guest preacher that Sunday was an army general that was in Black Hawk Down. He was like the guy from Black Hawk Down. And two of my high school buddies and I both came to faith in Jesus earlier that summer. And baptism was that step of obedience to show off this new life we were taking on. One of my buddies, my best friend from kindergarten, and I still keep up with him, he was pretty skinny, and he was like a state champion swimmer and a lifeguard in the summer, so he wasn't all that worried about his baptism that happened later in the summer, but my f- buddy and I that got baptized on this, we probably looked a little like Gary did uh, last week, just like kind of scared, a little nervous. We were a little huskier, so we were really excited when we drew brother Lowell, who was about 6'8", and had a little bulk to him because we knew we were literally in good hands. Most of the rest of that morning is kind of a blur to me, but I remember coming up out of the waters of baptism with my eyes open and seeing light. You say, well, that's, of course you did. That's what eyes are for. And this was a little different. This was different than the hundreds, maybe thousands of times I'd come up out of the water of like my childhood kidney-shaped pool in our backyard or like out of the Atlantic Ocean. My eyes were part of this experience and were somehow strangely renewed as I came out of those baptismal waters. So then later that summer, and this is the summer before college, my buddy and I, we didn't exactly know what we were supposed to be doing. We were like really hope for something or been anxious towards something, and then when you get there, maybe it's a trip that you put a lot of planning and resources into, and then you get there and you're like, so now what do we do? And that's a little bit what we were uh, as kind of initiated Christians in this new life of faith that we had taken hold of or that had taken hold of us. So most of that summer we, do, we did what uh, guys going into college do, and we lifted weights at Gold's Gym, and it was like, perpetually upper body day. Um, But we also tried to figure out how to get more Christian knowledge. That seemed like what we should be doing. We should be studying. And so looking back, it's kind of a sweet and pitiful thing that how we answer that is the three of us started a Bible study. We didn't ask pro tip for you guys. um, Ask someone that knows more than you to teach you. Don't just start and assume that you will get knowledge by yourself. So we all, just the three of us, sat down and we started to study Galatians, which is also probably not the easiest entry point into Christian scripture. Uh, and it's a little harsh at times. Paul calls them like fools and says, well, why are you bewitched? And, and that was like our first time sitting down with a nice Bible study. We didn't really get, it didn't really occur to us that this Christian life that we'd entered via baptism, this physical, tangible sign of this spiritual and intangible, in a lot of ways, reality, it didn't really occur to us that we were now living lives joined to Christ's resurrection, and that should involve our heads, but it should also involve our bodies and our behaviors in a much 
more extensive and, and round way than we were thinking. It was completely lost on us that our new membership into the church was going to both require and furnish more challenges to our bodies than our membership at Gold's Gym that's, that summer. Like Paul even calls this church that we, we were joined into, Christ's church, uses a metaphor that it is a body that we're part of. We use our bodies in this body as we follow Christ. And so the story of Christ is, in some way, always the story of human bodies. Consider our recent Lenten journey through John's Gospel, and this next season of, of Easter, it's really great because Lent is, is a six-week journey towards Easter, and Easter's seven weeks. How cool is that, right? And so we had been traveling towards the cross and towards Easter by studying John's Gospel and these signs that point towards salvation. And, and following Easter, we'll be reading from this epistle of John, 1 John. And these signs that we, that we had read in this Lenten journey, they all had some miraculous direct effect on human bodies. Take the wedding at Cana that featured real wine to make real bodies joyful as they celebrated the real union of two human bodies into one new life. Or the Roman officials little child's real body that was relieved of a fever that threw off real heat to stave off some sort of malady that would have taken his life. Or the man at Bethsaida who was crippled and had a mat-bound body that now walked into new life. Or the 5,000-plus hungry bodies whose stomachs started to growl simultaneously before Jesus satiated them with a little boy's lunchbox. We could go on and on until that final sign, the raising of Lazarus's once dead body. Or think about Jesus's body. I, I'm, I, think, I like to think of the hymn from Philippians 2 that many of us know. It says that while Jesus was in the very form of God, he didn't exploit his godly privileges or equality, but emptied himself and took the form of a slave, was born in human likeness. Being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see the shape of that? Jesus was up here in the very form of God, and then he was God and was with God and then emptied himself. He went down to take on a human body, the body of a servant, he humbled himself, and it's tempting to think when we read that he humbled himself that this just means he held his tongue sometimes or like was, was just kind of a nice guy, made himself small. But in reality, Jesus' obedience and humility led him to death. Not just any old death, but a death of prolonged and public bodily suffering. And so Jesus knows what it's like to have a body that hurts. So our reading today picks up on some of this, this story and this change. Like John's gospel starts, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John's epistle starts similarly that from the beginning there was a word. We, we might even capitalize that W word. 
John's Gospel starts with this sort of metaphysical poetry, and we're tempted to make this some sort of esoteric thing that's out there and drifts about, you know, a thousand feet above earth. But before we get there, this word of life, what the letter calls it, notice how physical this description is. When Sarah was reading this, it occurred to me just kind of how like circular and almost like the wheels were turning in the mud and it just kept going. And so pay attention to all these sense words used just in the beginning of this letter. Probably not the way you write a letter in letter writing class, but it says at the beginning of 1 John, we have heard, we have seen with our own eyes, we have seen and our hands have handled life that was revealed and we have seen it, we testify to it and we announce it. We have seen and we have heard and we also announce that you can have fellowship with us because we have fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus, and have complete and full joy. These are all sense words. It's almost, if I didn't know better, it's almost as if the best way to participate in the life of God is with our bodies and with all of our senses. By the way, that, that word participate, don't think participation ribbon from rec soccer. Think a really good way to translate that word fellowship. That fellowship is this active bodily thing. That you might have fellowship with us because we have fellowship with the Father and the Son by the Spirit. It's this dynamic movement. Early theologians, church fathers and mothers called it a dance. This fellowship and participation. That we use all of our senses in similar, in, in, and we can be affirmed in this by just looking at Jesus' ministry in, with, and towards bodies. Toward, this points towards that, that this life, this abundant life, is, is a very sensible, sense-filled sort of life this side of the resurrection, even as we wait for our resurrection. So some of you might have had a little flag go up like in the back of your head with this because many of us have been told otherwise, that our bodies are bad, that we need to overcome or we need to ignore our bodies, that our bodies, especially female bodies, are mostly sites of temptation on one hand or shame on the other. Hardly a day goes by when you don't open a web browser, and we open web browsers because we don't buy newspapers anymore, and, and read a story of how black bodies are being killed. Like the most recent one was in Sacramento, Stephen Clark. Or that bodies from other countries are being considered less important than ones which happen to be born in America. But what if our bodies, what if all of our bodies, like everything else in this creation, are both very good, like Jesus, or like God calls by his word in, in the creation accounts in Genesis, very good. What if our bodies, like creation, are both very good and groaning for redemption, like the rest of creation? That somewhere in that meantime, that these bodies, though, can participate, have fellowship with God the Father and Son by the Spirit that our bodies can actually join in God's renewal, not just be renewed, but join in renewal. The ways that the new creation is breaking in and, and colonizing the old. Like God's kingdom it has these little outposts that spread in tiny spaces and places in our neighborhood and our, our city and in our world. 
that we can participate in that, be part of that, actively, bodily. I think of this, this uh, quote from, uh, used to be a bishop theologian, uh, N.T. Wright, and, and he connects this with, with our resurrection, with, with how this is fueled by resurrection. He says, the point of the resurrection is that this present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities will not, are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day we leave it all behind. They're part of what we might call building for God's kingdom. So you might be sitting there wondering, well, that sounds really good. But, and I'm, I'm even a little excited by it, but aside from our bodies being broken and capable of healing and maybe even good and capable of doing good, I know my body. <laughs> Aren't bodies like mine still capable of participating in sin and darkness and doing bad? The answer is yes. <laughs> In this letter from John to this little fledgling resurrection church, more than acknowledges this. At the end of our passage, I love how he says, my little children. Like this is Paul. At a, most of us think of Paul as this really mean guy, but Paul is this wonderful pastor who uh, at various times even talks about mothering these churches uh, in, into obedience and into life. The beginning of First John um, 1 says, God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. We have fellowship with him and live in the darkness. We are lying and do not act truthfully. But if we live in the light in the same way he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from every sin. You see, following the resurrection of Jesus and our responding in faith to join in both Jesus' suffering and his being raised to eternal life, we'll still struggle with the grip of how things are and have been. This is going to happen. We'll still struggle with sin. We'll still gravitate back towards the comforts of darkness. But we're reminded that we have fellowship, that we participate with light. We've been called into the light together and have fellowship there. Together, then, we struggle in the light of day. If you're struggling, don't do it by yourself and don't do it in the dark. Let's struggle together in the light We'll screw up, we'll forget, we'll ask for forgiveness, we'll encourage each other and build each other up in this light because while sin and death still allure us, they've been proven less powerful, less final, and less real than the eternal life wrought by the blood of Jesus. This blood that has and continues to cleanse us from our sins. The, the word for cleanse there is not it has cleansed you like 
when you were a kid and you became a Christian, but it continues to cleanse you from your sin. To live in sin now or to live in darkness or to prefer darkness after you've been acquainted with the light is to live in an obsolete world that doesn't exist. That's why, that's why John, if you do that, it just calls you a liar. It calls you a, he calls you a fake or a phony because you're acting like you don't know the truth. You've seen, you've heard, you've touched, and you've talked resurrection. Don't use your body for anything else or anything less. This is also the point that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans 6. By the way, Paul, Paul's body was once used to make Christians suffer. And after being met by Christ, now his body is being used to serve, suffer, and proclaim the gospel of a crucified Jesus. In Romans 6, he writes, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as instruments of righteousness. And later, in the same letter, he entreats the same readers, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true, don't be a liar, (laughs) and proper worship. Don't conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I love the way uh, the message uh, paraphrase, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, renders this first verse. I think we have it up there, Ned. It says, take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God has done for you is the best thing you can do for him. So our everyday lives, even as they're filled with sin, can become lives of worship. Not just a few hours we get in here. Like every day, all the parts of our lives. This Christian uh, theologian and philosopher uses words about worship. Like we normally... The verbs we think about worship or the places we think for worship are, are you know, sit, kneel, stand, pray, um, and the places are church or someplace quiet, like our, our quiet time out in the woods or a retreat center. But this Christian philosopher, uh, James, Jamie Smith, uh, uses words like arena and gymnasium for our worship lives. It says, worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. It means gives us new habits, because habits are things we do with our body. We get, we get muscle memory. It says, worship isn't just something we do, it's, it's where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. This everyday, ordinary life becomes the sight. These beautiful, fragile bodies of ours become the very instruments with which we live into this present future in which God is redeeming all things and we join in that redemption. So we've been given resurrection eyes to go back to John's list of sense words. We've been given resurrection eyes to look into the darkness without fear, and begin to see ways life is being revealed. 
This might include relationships that on first glance just seem so irreparably broken, we just wanna throw them in the trash bin and meet someone else, move somewhere else and start over. Or like a place, like literal, there are places in this neighborhood that you look and you're just like, man, that is so messed up, we just need to bulldoze it. We, we don't renovate that, we bulldoze that. But I think resurrection eyes, we've been given eyes to see and imaginations to see how new creation might emerge right in the midst of the old in really surprising and powerful ways. We've been given resurrection ears, John says, to hear the word of life. These ears had to be retuned and put closely to the street because this word isn't just being spoken from pulpits and in the safety of a sanctuary. The word goes out powerfully and surprisingly. And like any second language, it's gonna take a lifetime to learn all the little nuances. I was doing premarital counseling with this couple, and the 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 um, the guy uh, is Italian and doesn't have a good, still doesn't have a good grasp of English. And I, I said something to them about you, you need to walk in each other's shoes. And he kind of paused and looked looked to her for interpretation. And um, and, and he goes, "Oh, uh, you need to get get in." her pants. And I was like, uh, that's not exactly what I'm saying. We'll stick with shoes. <laughs> but like any second language, it takes a long time to learn the idioms, to learn how to speak and learn how to hear. I think that's also why we've been given resurrection tongues. So we can become native speakers. We learn not just the vocabulary, but also the syntax and the song of the good news. We learn that our tongues, while capable of cursing and vulgarity, of inarticulate ums and uhs, these tongues are made to confess sin, to speak good news, to share in a meal that helps us remember the death and life offered to us in Christ's body and blood. Our resurrection tongues are capable of speaking life and tasting that the Lord is good. And finally, we've been given resurrection hands. And I still, after struggling with this passage, have no idea what he means when he says this message which your hands have handled. He says, you have handled, you have held this word of life. But I do know that hands, these resurrection hands are to provide a tender, healing, and comforting touch. It's one thing to send a letter or to... Uh, write a text or to place a call, but it's another thing to be there. Hands, these hands will get dirty and might even get kind of tough or callous from the work that we're gonna be doing with God to cultivate and bring life out of decay and death. These are hands themselves that bear witnesses. And that word, again, when we think of witness, we, we normally think of of something we do vocally or maybe we write down, but the, the, the Greek word there for witness is, is the same word that we get our word martyr from. That our hands can bear witness by being on the suffering side of things rather than inflicting suffering on others. That our hands in this world can trace nail scars and spear wounds in Jesus' body, but also in other people's bodies, and that these very marks can be testimonies of God's faithfulness. That they, they can remind us that we're no longer to kill, but to give life, even in our suffering.
Our hands now bind up wounds like these in Jesus, even as we await a more complete healing. So I leave you with kind of a, a summary or a benediction from a theologian named Sarah Coakley who talks about this resurrection, this bodily, physical faith that we have because of the resurrection. She says, so here is the great truth at the heart of the Christian faith. Resurrection. Full stop. Stake your life on it. Struggle with it. And everything will change. Die, turn, and see. And then live in this mystical body. She's talking about the church. Which is the blessed company of all faithful people who walk with you on the great adventure of the Christian life of redemption. Of joy and of fulfillment. And which will hold you in all your frailty and glory until your life's end. For Christ is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen. Will you guys pray with me? Father, we offer our lives to you in all their frailty and glory. We, at our best, volunteer um, to participate in this kingdom that you've begun, initiated, inaugurated in Christ being raised from the dead. Lord, make that so real and so appealing and so sensible that we don't turn back to a fake life of darkness and sin because you've defeated death. Give us this word of life. May it be on our ears, in our eyes, our tongues. May we handle it and hold it and share it with others. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.